Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, in just a moment, we head down to the state capitol where there's been some major developments regarding bills as crossover day is fastly approaching. Plus, two programs aligned with an education mission, one for elementary kids. It's in a pilot phase out in Gwinnett County, and the other prepares high school students for college, but also stays in touch with them as they navigate year one and even year two. Those conversations are coming up, but first this. The city of Atlanta is creating a task force to provide input on its public safety training facility and the green space around it in DeKalb County, as we hear from Shermaine Cruz. The city says the task force will supplement the work of a stakeholder advisory committee, which already exists. The new group will engage with the community on the plans for Atlanta's $90 million public safety training facility, dubbed Cop City by Opponents. It will focus on parks and sustainability, memorializing the former Atlanta prison farm site and the public safety training curriculum. Mayor Andre Dickens will name about 40 members to the task force, and seek an initial set of recommendations by July. This comes after more than a year of clashes between law enforcement and protesters, who raise concerns about the project's impact on the environment and police violence in the area's poor, majority black neighborhoods. Shemaine Cruz, WABE News. In other news, workers at Georgia's public colleges and universities are pushing for expanded union rights. As Martha Dalton reports, a group held a rally at the Capitol yesterday. Workers in every state, including Georgia, have a right to unionize. But Georgia is one of a handful of states that doesn't allow public sector unions to collectively bargain for things like salaries and benefits. Some Democratic senators, including Nan Orock of Atlanta, have introduced a bill that would change that. Of course we should have collective bargaining for public employees. Of course. And we can point to places in the nation that have enjoyed that basic right to organize, have dignity and a voice on the job, and to negotiate for your demands. The bill has been assigned to a committee, but a hearing hasn't been scheduled. It's not likely to get very far in the Republican-controlled legislature. Martha Dalton. WABE News. Speaking of legislative news, state senators are looking at a bill to regulate dogs labeled dangerous or vicious. We'll hear more from WABE politics reporter Raul Bali. Republican State Senator Lee Anderson's bill says local governments would appoint dog control officers who would make a judgment on a dog after there's been an incident. Those officers might be people who work in animal control, public health, or are law enforcement officers, but they don't have to be. Claudine Wilkins is an attorney who's worked on the proposal. She says a person would have to have a reasonable belief that a dog posed an imminent and unjustified threat of injury. So if it's barking plus running after you or snarling and coming after you or making that extra step to come after you, that creates the unjustified threat. An attack that leaves a puncture wound on a person or kills or injures another pet would also classify a dog as dangerous. More serious injuries or multiple incidents would classify a dog as vicious. Senator Anderson explains what would happen next. This bill requires the dangerous, vicious dog owners to have to have it microchipped. It requires sterilization. It requires, on a dangerous dog, $50,000 insurance, and on a vicious dog, 100000 The proposal does say that dogs cannot be classified as dangerous or vicious just based on their breed. Senate Bill 142 remains in committee as changes are expected. Raul Bally, WABE News, the state capitol. 
While it's not clear what will happen with that bill, there's news regarding others, a measure that could take away ballot drop boxes across the state and one which could make it easier to challenge and disqualify an unlimited number of votes. Let's bring in our other WABE politics reporter, Sam Greenglass, who is in his second office known as the state capitol. Sam, welcome. Hey there, Rose, from the Capitol steps where I've just had a therapy dog. There's some construction going on and a bunch of Rivian trucks lined up in front of me. So, ah, uh, yes, come the, on down. A beautiful the, day at the Capitol. The pet therapy dog, I'm venturing to say he's probably needed right now. <laughs> Bailey the Doodle, yes. <laughs> Let's begin here, Sam. There are two measures here as it relates to Georgia's current elections laws here. Let's give our, our listeners a brief description of both here, and I'll let you start with whichever one you want to begin with. So first, I just want to say that these have been some fast changing bills mm-hmm. over the last couple of days. Uh, for example, SB 221, which does with these mass deals with these mass voter challenges and the drop boxes. Uh, the current version is not even on the website yet or available for print. Uh, and this was getting changed as the hearing happened last night. So these are fast developing situations. Um, but let's start there with mm-hmm. 221. Mm-hmm. Um, so this bill. The biggest piece of it, I would say, is dealing with these mass voter challenges. And if you remember back to the election last year, you had this situation where in lots of counties, a small number of individuals were filing challenges to the eligibility of tens of thousands of voters. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, these challenges were thrown out in the end, but still took up hours and weeks and many, many staff members Mm -hmm. to to process at a time when these election offices are really busy. Uh, This bill would make doing that easier, make making the challenges easier. Uh, Basically, it lowers the threshold in that just a name being flagged in this national change of address registry, that would be enough to sustain one of these challenges to keep moving forward in the investigation rather than initially tossing it out. So that could pave the way for way more of these things to happen. So they're actually adding more provisions to something that really isn't, as we know, really been proven that we need. Yeah, I mean, a crucial piece of context to this and many of the other election related bills that come through this legislature is that a lot of them are still driven by a lot of these conspiracies about massive widespread election fraud in the 2020 election that, as we all know, and has been borne out in multiple investigations, did not happen. Uh, so yeah, that, that is where a lot of this is coming from. Now I should say that there are some fixes in these bills Mm -hmm. that the secretary of state's office and, and other election officials say would help to close some gaps, but a lot of these big, most sweeping changes are, are things that election officials and the secretary of state's office say would not be helpful and might actually be illegal in some cases. Let's talk about the ballot boxes then. Is that one of those that could be deemed illegal? Not illegal, but uh, initially what this bill was trying to do is require that all ballot drop boxes have a live stream camera on them, uh, which would allow the public at home to see who was going in and out of a drop box. Uh, Even though that these are already mandated to be indoors, secured, only open during business hours of a a, a voting location. Um, In the last literally couple of minutes of this hearing last night, uh, one of the Republican senators moved to ban the drop boxes entirely. Uh, and that passed with about a minute to go in this hearing. And then the entire bill was passed. Now, I just want to put a little uh, ice on this that, uh, you know, we still don't know if this bill is going to be something that the House would pick up, should it even pass the Senate. So, you know, I don't want to be too alarmist. We should be paying attention to this stuff. But it's still a little too early to say whether this bill really has legs to get to the governor's desk by the end of the session. I'm a, And I'm going to venture out here and say that these measures are not met with a bipartisan support, correct? Uh, that is true. Uh, Democrats, for sure, uh, in the committee unanimously voted against this measure uh, and have also, you know, been outspoken critics of attempts to to curb drop boxes. Uh, You know, NPR, GPB and WAB did an investigation last year that I worked on Mm -hmm. that, you know, found that a lot of these drop boxes in places that they were curbed under SB 202, they disproportionately affected cities and suburbs, which, as we know, are disproportionately uh, people of color and uh, people that tend to vote more Democratic. 
Sam, there's also a measure, a provision in Senate Bill 222 permitting outside grant money from from is this funding election count election departments in, in counties or operations in general? What's this about? Yeah, so um, this is another perennial issue that we often hear from some of the folks who are making false claims about widespread election fraud, that county election offices are somehow tainted by receiving outside grant money. And so what this bill would do is basically prevent them from taking this money to help run elections. And a little context here, um, many local election offices are chronically underfunded. They don't have the money they need to carry out the many different rules and regulations related to running an election, especially in this moment when there's so much intensity around elections coming out of the pandemic, coming out of the 2020 election. And uh, what this bill does is prevents uh, election offices from taking any grant money. Uh, The Zuckerberg Foundation, Mm -hmm. for example, is one of these groups that has given a lot of grants to local elections offices to help uh, with the conduct of of elections. And I want to go back to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. You mentioned that uh, his office has even raised some eyebrows to this. But has he gone on record and said anything? What has the Secretary of State Raffensperger said regarding these measures? Well, the state election director, uh, Blake Evans, actually testified at the hearing last night, and he did point out that there are a couple pieces of this bill that are actually helpful in this moment. Uh, As I mentioned, like kind of to close some gaps in election law that need a little cleanup, Uh, but specifically related to the voter challenge provision, uh, he said that it is possible that these changes might actually violate the National Voter Registration Act, meaning in plain English that this could run afoul of federal election law. Uh, And so there were lots of these moments where you could kind of see that this bill was crafted kind of hastily and might have some some sloppy language in the technical pieces of it. and also you had concerns uh, on the live streaming of, of ballot drop boxes, too, uh, which, of course, is no longer part of this bill because it now eliminates them entirely. And Sam, for our listeners who may not be aware of this, I mean, is it common? I think you and I know the answers, but sometimes it is common that uh, a, a late addition, a last minute addition to a measure gets thrown in there. The public doesn't have time to really review it, that people can't come to the to the committee hearing and, 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 you know, make their comments known. This is, it's not uncommon. I mean, as as someone in covering my second session, it is shocking to me sometimes how seat of the pants, it seems policy is made uh, in these chambers. I mean, you've got people making revisions on the fly and you're sitting there trying to catch up and be like, which line are they talking about now? Which bill? And then, you know, it's quickly passed without a hard copy to look at. I mean, the final text of, this bill before the version that they even started the hearing with wasn't available until, you know, just before the hearing. It was a 6 p.m. hearing that stretched until 8, you know, after most of the work of the Capitol has concluded for the day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of this is happening really fast. And the public is often left trying to catch up, to follow what is happening and to find the space to uh, express their opinion about it in public comment. And that's why we rely so much on folks like you and Raul Bali. I want to get to one other measure. Uh, there was also a vote on a bill. And, and the best way to put this, it was similar to Florida's so-called don't say gay bill. What was the outcome of this measure? Where is it? Yeah. So SB 88 in its initial form would have uh, in most cases prohibited teachers, coaches, camp counselors from talking with young people about sexuality or gender identity And uh, this bill got watered down before a hearing and a vote today. But in the end, another one of these cases in the final moments of a committee hearing before someone else needs the room and another committee's coming in, uh, there was a motion to table this bill. And that motion succeeded, actually. Uh, You know, there was some pushback from the Georgia Baptist Mission Board uh, about the watered down version. Uh, There was pushback from one Republican about some provisions related to private schools. And so the decision was, okay, let's not deal with this now. So what this means logistically, uh, we are very close to crossover day, Mm -hmm. Monday, which is the deadline when bills have to pass at least one chamber. Uh, There is not much time left for that to happen. So because this bill was tabled in committee today, it is probably not going to make it through the Senate before crossover day, meaning you think it's probably dead this year. But 
but there's mm. this thing called a vehicle, uh, which means <laughs> yeah. that you can take the text from one bill, strip it out, and glue it into another bill that's already passed one of these chambers. And so, as I said on Twitter today, no, no bill is ever really, really dead. There are plenty of ghost bills that have their way of popping back in something else. As uh, my mentor and colleague, Dennis O'Hare, used to say in his <laughs> Monty Python, mostly dead. <laughs> yep. Uh, uh, you think I used a ghost emoji on Twitter today. <laughs> and finally, what are all these Rivian trucks doing? Are they giving them away? You, you're going to come back to the station in a Rivian truck? What's happening? Okay, so while we were talking, they actually drove away over to Liberty Plaza, where there's going to be a press conference with the governor, the lieutenant governor, the house speaker. It's Rivian Day at the Capitol. We had Kia Day uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this is as Governor Kemp is trying to move forward on his pledge to make Georgia the electric mobility capital of the country, of the world. Uh, you know, as we've covered, Rivian is investing in a major production facility here in Georgia. Uh, the backdrop to this, too, though, is that Rivian posted some not so great looking earnings for last year. They've had some problems at their production facility in Illinois. So, you know, the governor and the, the state house is looking to shore up this relationship, encourage people uh, that it is full steam ahead. And this is this is part of Georgia's future. Uh, and you, you, you put it po kind of politely, but uh, are we to understand that Rivian lost uh, a billion dollars? In, uh, I have to I have to look back at the numbers. I don't have them in maybe front of me, more but, uh, like uh, like six point eight billion. Yeah, mm. uh, I, I have to double check the numbers. I can't totally speak to that. But uh, you're right. I mean, there's already was pushback from some community members, uh, something that former Senator David Perdue really pushed on the state spending this economic development money to help bring a facility like Rivian here. Uh but at the same time, there's the recognition that uh, EVs could be part of Georgia's economic future. It's certainly going to be a huge part of the way we all get around in the decades ahead. And Kemp is, you know, really leaning into this no matter what. And it's interesting, too, because it's not necessarily in the climate change frame. It is very much in the this is the future jobs, economic development. This is good for Georgians. I also got to have the infrastructure nationwide, too. WABE politics reporter Sam Greenglass, as always, thank you for keeping and our Close Look listeners informed on all the legislative happenings. Thank you, Sam. Hey, thanks so much, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Census data from 2021 reveals 92% of Atlanta adults, 25 and older, are high school graduates. But that number drops down to 56% for adults with a bachelor's degree or higher. Now, that gap could prevent many local young adults from accessing careers that increasingly require college degrees or special credentials. Now, here locally, there's a program helping students in various ways to attend college and then goes a step further beyond year one of college. It's called One Goal. And recently, I spoke with Taylor Ramsey, executive director of One Goal, and Lashanti Holland, a sophomore at Clayton State University. Lashanti, you were telling me about when you were a sophomore in high school. Did you think, did you have any plans what you wanted to do? No, I wasn't really sure, but I was in this program called HOSA. It's like a healthcare organization, and that kind of helped shift me to my major to where I am right now. Did you, so you, so you knew you wanted to go to college, obviously. Did yes. you have any concerns about being college ready? All those other things that come with, you know, leaving home and, and being um, on campus? Yes, well, I actually wasn't really thinking much about that until like my junior year when I got introduced into One Goal. Mm -hmm. And if you could describe your attitude, your feeling, your confidence for heading to college before One Goal and after, how would you describe that transformation? Well, the first transformation would be very nervous, very um, 
not knowing of what I was getting myself into, mm-hmm. I would like to say. But after one goal and my senior teacher, Miss Powell, helped me, it kind of helped lift it, this weight that I was that was holding on to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, Taylor, how often do you hear students talk about, you know, the little anxiety and everything else in, involved with just thinking about going to college and then, you know, they enter your program. You hear this a lot. Oh, yeah. And Lashanti and I were sitting in the car uh, just a moment ago kind of talking about that experience. Students experience tremendous anxiety and uncertainty. And especially over the last couple of years, we were just reminiscing that Lashanti's senior year was entirely virtual. She's a class of 2021 Mays High School graduate. So then was, you know, confronting that and then thinking about going straight to a four-year university. And we at One Goal try and just help students think about what do you want long term and tap into their innate strengths and greatness. Is that where One Goal begins? with the students asking them okay tell us a little bit about you what are your interests and then you take it in different phases how does this work that's exactly how it starts rose so we're a three-year program and students join one goal in their junior year and we operate as a credit-bearing class our kind of the whole big idea of one goal is that we have to make intensive post-secondary advising an integrated part of the school day we got to treat it almost like any other core subject how early do you start with them we start in junior year and so we take students who want to go to a post-secondary opportunity or may be uncertain they're on the fence and we know we're going to need more support and in that junior year it is a lot about who are you what do you care about what are your values what are your interests and if that is your long-term interest what steps are you going to have to take to get there is it a two-year degree a four-year degree a technical credential then senior year we get brass tacks we've got to figure out where you're going to apply you got to get that financial aid right scholarships you got to take the steps to enroll and then i would say the special sauce is we provide an entire third year of support so we need to help students get from high school frankly all the way to their first day of the sophomore year of their post-sec experience because that's where we lose kids they either continue and you know will actually complete that degree or they may fall off their path let's go back because you all are recognizing that it's more than just getting them ready for day one on the on campus you've got to get them first understand their mindset and then work with them uh, Lashanti, when you think back to the, the first time when you got introduced into the program, did you think, okay, this is going to help me tremendously? Honestly, I didn't know how far it would help me, yeah. to be honest, until after, until we started getting to the FAFSA and, like, picking out, like, five, our top five schools. But, yes, I wasn't really sure how yeah. it would take upon me. Did you, um, now... We, I love Georgia State. I gave their commencement address last last year. I love them. Was Georgia Tech, George, uh, Clayton State? Your, I'm sorry, Clayton State, your first school? Um, it was my second top. Mm-hmm. My second top school. My first top was Kennesaw State University, mm-hmm. and I did transfer from Kennesaw. Okay, so I'm at my second school. And you like it? Yes, I love it. Good folks at Clayton State. I should say that. Fair. They'll send me an email. <laughs> For those students who may be the first in their families who are attending college. Um, and and perhaps they're, they're, they don't have access or resources or folks to turn to to walk them through all of this. You all seeing that you're starting with some, they just have no clue. You really have to begin from the ground level, ground zero, I guess if you want to call it that, and getting them ready. Yeah, and I'll just say I'm a first-generation college student. Yeah. That is why I'm in this work and why I'm in this role and so Me passionate. Yeah. All right. Hey, yeah. Rose. Okay, yeah. I've got a proposition for you later. Then. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> I wrote myself into something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, the statistics will show, right? If you are a student from a low-income background or first-generation college student, if you're out there listening and you fall in that category and you got a two-year or four-year degree, frankly, you're in a very small minority of people in this mm-hmm. country. And that is because of systemic barriers and equities that exist. And that is what one goal is here to disrupt. And yes, it just, you know, all the research would show if you're the first in your family to navigate this path, there's going to be a lot you don't know and understand. You can get there, but you're going to need some additional support. Are you all, how many district, school districts are you in? Is it just APS or just, how do folks get involved? So currently we're in seven APS schools and one South Fulton High School. And we really do partner with schools and districts who you know, have said, I want to bring more supports to my kids, Mm -hmm. especially the ones who are the most vulnerable, to make sure they have what they need to access the educational opportunity. So we're looking for partners. We have some new partners that will start with us next year. I want to back up a little bit. How long have you all been around? Yes. Um, So One Goal is a national organization. We've been around for 15 years, and we are in our sixth year of operation here in the metro Atlanta area. And how did you get involved with it? 
Yeah, well, like I name, so I'm a first-generation college student, and could I just tell a little bit? I mean, sure, I'll, I'll share a quick yeah. story. I mean, I think that really exemplifies what one goal is, but, you know, when I think back to my own journey to college 25 years ago, you know, I had a couple things going for me, which was a mom who made a lot of phone calls and was super persistent, and a high school counselor who really saw some promise in me but knew that as a first-gen college student, a student from a low-income background, a student from a single parent, I was going to need additional support. And Mr. Getz, thank you, wherever you are, really sat down and walked me through that whole process every step of the way. And high school counselors are... And we didn't have the internet. No internet. This is all paper. This is going to the library. Shanti, we didn't have all this. We didn't. We got things in the mail. It's called the mail, right? (laughs) Right. And I mean, my mom and I talk about this. I mean, it was a totally different world. So here, you know, he really went above and beyond and it made a tremendous difference. And there's high school counselors doing this all across the country. But frankly, that kind of support they can only give to a tiny fraction of students. Especially if you have a high school that has hundreds, hundreds, and even a thousand or two thousand students are you able to does it but, but because of that population growth or the increase there in the student enrollments at some of these districts i imagine you have some challenges trying to get enough people in your program is that why you can only maybe support so many high schools right now well i would say it's a there's tremendous need and desire it is a lack of resources right so schools want to provide this kind of intensive support to kids most high school seniors are going to get about 38 minutes of, of personalized advising because of the student-to-counselor ratio, right? Just 38 minutes. 38 minutes. And if you've helped a young person get from high school to any post-sec op, you know it's going to take a whole lot more than 38 minutes. That is in part why we see the massive disparities between who gets to go to a post-second opportunity and not. So schools want to partner. It is about freeing up resources. Yep. Lashanti, that first year at school and one goal was still working with you, checking in on you. How important was that for you? Very important, especially for a first-time student in college. It's a lot to adjust to. So with one goal being there, checking in on me, making sure that my grades are good, making sure that I'm going to class on time, just make sure that everything is, you know, on set for me. (laughs) How was your time management? I struggle. I'll be, look, I should be honest and fair. I struggle with time management my first year I was all over the map <laughs> but I got better you know mm-hmm. I, being in track and field helped because your coach is like you better get the track practice on time but that was something I struggled with did you have any struggles that you want to share that you know now in your second year you have mastered uh yes especially time management and studying um I would say y'all please make sure that y'all go to your advisors keep in contact with anybody to make sure that y'all can study and just be you know that's okay, no. Study. Yeah. So now you're better, right? Yes, I am better. They helped me with a lot. <laughs> not, met, go ahead. I was going to say not just with academics, but financial needs as well. I feel like every school needs a one goal organization. Wow. There's your ambassador. Well, Shanti right put there. it well, and she put in the work. Really hard yeah. work. Yeah. For those students who are still may have some struggles in the first year, what are you all able to provide for them? Yeah, so it's a lot of what Lashanti described. And the term sounds weird, but it's called intrusive advising. That's the actual term for it because it is that, which is how do we – proactively reach out to the students in our program and keep them engaged, right? We're going to call them. We're going to make sure they don't miss deadlines. You know, we're going to build their agency. Kids have to be a willing participant in this. Mm -hmm. But as opposed to letting students struggle, we're going to reach out ideally and help them, you know, stay on track. You all have to deal in in data, obviously. Are you able to look at students who, like Lashanti, who are doing great, and then maybe those students who, you know, had some challenges and then How do you assess then what you need to do? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the pandemic also has only layered challenges on challenges. So we recently did a kind of root cause analysis when kids are dropping out, what's happening there. And it won't surprise the audience. It's financial. It's um, balancing family and school. It's socio uh, emotional, and sometimes it's academic. And so we can. There are some predictors. You mentioned Georgia State, right? Kind of following in suit there. There are predictors, and we can know. Okay, if a student's struggling in this way, they're going to need a more intensive intervention. And mm-hmm. we have coaches on our staff who will go in person 
um, regularly and meet with students, make sure they stay on track. I have a question from a listener who says, do you all sure. also work with students who may, who may be undocumented? We do, actually. We do. And we're actually sitting in a training. My team is sitting in a training today uh, with Freedom University to think about what are the different supports in place for all the different documentation sort of statuses that we might see, parents and documented students, et cetera. Without a program like One Goal, do you think it's, can people fully understand that for some students that they can even have the best grades, but just making, getting ready to make that transition, this is a new chapter in your life. And understand that for some students, if they don't make it the first year, it may not totally be related to grades. The grades could be a a consequence of something else. That's right. Programs like this are, are needed for so many students. Yeah. I mean, truly, we were just talking about this, that the first year of college for so many is a major point of transition. And that's why our program focuses from that junior year of high school to, quote unquote, the first day of sophomore year of a post-sec path. Because what we found is if we can get students to bridge from high school through that first year, their chances of ultimately graduating, which (laughs) is the goal after all, are much higher. But yes, right, you're away from home for the first time. And again, the student population we're um, specifically focused on is in many cases going to face many more financial Mm -hmm. or potentially social barriers than otherwise. I have another question from a listener who says, do you all help students in writing their statements for applications? We do, yes. Personal statements is a whole part of our curriculum. You you remember your personal statement? Not sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's all a blur, right? But yes, it's it's been two years. It's been two years. But one goal, they help with a lot of connections. I have met so many good people at Clayton State within my first year of being yeah. here so many good connections they are. The, the personal statement do you remember your personal statement uh i do actually yeah. i do a little bit only because too i've thought so much about my own college going experience but i talked a lot about the adversity that i'd faced in my personal life yeah. and how that made me a good candidate for college um yeah when you uh, when you all advise the kids with the personal statements are you telling are you how much are you telling them to reveal just be themselves i mean you know this is new for them yeah i mean i think authenticity and being honest and within you don't have to share anything you don't want to share, right? Um, and so, yes, we help students with every part of the college application process. That being said, is there a process that you all aren't able to help right now or that you feel like you could do more in that area? And if so, what is it? I mean, I would still say that helping st- you know, the, the path to college, and when I say college, I'm talking any post-sec path, two-year, four-year technical, mm-hmm. has become increasingly complex. And so there's a step of helping students think about the, the institutions that are going to be the best match and fit for them. I would say still the affordability piece is often the most complex. How are you going to piece together mm-hmm. grants, loans, scholarships? And, you know, so that we see students who may not have to transfer in that first year. So I think we're doing well, and and there's always more to do. And there's some things, there's some interventions we need on a state and local level, frankly. Like what? Like needs-based aid. (laughs) I know you've talked about this several times on your show. You know, I think the Georgia's legislature made some important steps last year with completion grants and um, child care subsidies for parents Mm -hmm. who are in college. But we need more needs-based aid for students in this state if we're going to see more students from low-income backgrounds actually be able to access post-secondary opportunities. And it matters for our economics, and I think there's a moral argument there as well. Are you all able to provide some financial support in areas might maybe just for books you know just those little things that you know I mean room and board of course is important and then the actual tuition for the but go ahead yeah I would like to say yes they do provide um they help with tuition costs with books food anything that you need um I'm trying to see I know every first semester they send out at least seven hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars to help with funding and it can go towards anything where were y'all when not <laughs> people say that i mean we partner closely with achieve atlanta yeah. who are they've know, been on the program before yeah. yes and we could not do this work without them there to make sure students get that scholarship but we have implemented again taking suit from institutions like gsu mm-hmm. we have what we call an emergency enrollment grant and it is up to 750 dollars for students as long as they are in a post-sec program mm-hmm. so we have students who've been getting that grant every year four or five years do they have to maintain some other type of uh, criteria gpa or anything like no, that they need to be enrolled and that's where you know because sometimes students are going to falter mm-hmm. and they're going to need we don't want to penalize we're there to support yeah do they have to attend school here in georgia no they don't not in our program no 
Mm-hmm. Ashanti, in, in, in two years when you're graduating, I don't know, maybe I'll give the commencement speech again and I'll look out there and I see you. Uh, yes. You're gonna give be re- a shout out. Give me a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> What's your career goal? My career goal. I would like to become an exercise physiologist, but I'm still looking into, um, you know, as far as careers. I'm still looking into it. But an exercise physiologist is on my top one. I like that. When you have success stories, and you're already a success story, I don't need to say if. She's a success story. Declared it. Yeah, declared it. Right. Own it. That's right. Yeah. Stories like this are so important that you can use Lashanti's story to get more people involved in the program, get more funding. This is what you want. This is a clear example of what you all do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, Lashanti would say, I mean, there are bumps in the road. You know, a lot of our students, it's two steps forward and one step back. But that is where programs and interventions can really be a difference maker. And our students show up. You know, I always we are simply there to support them and, frankly, them tapping into their unlimited potential. No doubt. Support through anything. First semester isn't easy in college. It's not easy. But with one goal, they make sure they're there for you mentally like financially everything they're they're supportive very supportive that's what's up they helped me they even helped me move in to clayton state they physically helped you move in yes i could have used y'all my dad dropped me <laughs> off there you go no i'm just kidding he helped me yeah. i was helped moved in yeah very appreciative thank y'all yeah thank you well thank you and i mean you know we do it because of students like lashanti but truly there is little we will not do to help students get to and stay in and through to complete some care packages oh we have done that mm-hmm. in the pandemic yeah. i mean we kept the post office in business we were just <laughs> sending stuff out nonstop. taylor ramsey executive director of one goal and lashanti holland a sophomore at clayton state university thank you both for taking the time continued success young lady reach out if you're thank needing you so much. we got you thank you so much rose it was a pleasure we'll send you a WABE care package. I don't know. Thank we'll you. take it. That's awesome. <laughs> all we got are shirts, hats, and mugs, but yes. that's what we do best. We love the swag. All the swag. <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm grateful for anything. So. Yes. Thank you so much. Closer Look continues now from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Research suggests there are many benefits for students who attend school-related programs outside of the classroom. Also, they say, listen, students who regularly participate in these type of programs, they can actually they can strengthen their math and reading skills and have a greater school attendance and school engagement. Now, locally, there's a new initiative being tested in Gwinnett County. Georgia Gwinnett College has launched a new school-related program that they hope will be a model for programs throughout the state. It's called the Grizzly Academy Dreamers. Dr. Amber E. Ebert is an assistant professor of science education and the secondary education department chair at Georgia Gwinnett College. Dr. Ebert, welcome to the program. I really appreciate it. Listen, um, let's talk about the Grizzly Academy Dreamers. Uh, how did this this come up? So uh, about two years ago, we started talking about this idea um, in the School of Education at GGC, and um, my dean was very supportive, and the entire institution was very supportive, and we, we wanted to pursue this. We wanted to write this federal grant to be able to start an after-school program, but not just start an after-school program, but mm-hmm. really try to be innovative and unique and work with our school partners so that we could bring the students from the schools to a college campus. We really wanted that to be a piece of, of our architecture. And often when we think of after-school programs, I mean, sometimes we might think there may be an athletic or some mm-hmm. type of arts, but you all are doing something. I mean, you got wellness, you got yep. environmental literacy and all this. How did you come up with these, what you call additional academic activities? I think one of the most... Because if it was left up to me, we'd all be playing basketball. <laughs> right. Well, prob- probably the students as well. <laughs> um, one of the things that we did during the proposal writing phase, it was very important to me that the voices of the parents the students and the schools were heard and that it wasn't me or someone from my team making that decision about what elements should be in this program. So we took the time and with our school partners did a needs assessment 
So what'd you hear? We heard that they wanted the very things that you stated. They did want wellness. They wanted athletics. They wanted art. They wanted more STEM. Uh, they wanted entrepreneurship. They wanted journalism. I love the those things, kids. The things that, that we're doing. And, and what was really moving was the parental voices really let us know that wellness and they said it in a variety of ways Mm -hmm. Uh, my student could benefit from support especially coming out of covid Um, better coping skills social emotional learning just general wellness and even students recognized that they needed that as well and so you've you've done the assessment Mm -hmm. which you know everyone always talks about the importance of listening to the community which i 100 percent agree with obviously listen to the community so now you've got these lists and here comes the money question funding Mm -hmm. because you, you would love to put this in every school right now it's sort of in a pilot phrase so talk about i think there are two schools that you're going to sort of launch this in right yes yes so we we have two school partners lawrenceville elementary school um, and jenkins elementary school and so we started with those two schools worked with those principals um, took that information built the the pieces into the grant proposal and we were lucky enough to be funded we found out in july of last year that we had we were funded how much did i get 350000 a year, and it is a five-year grant, so it's about $1.7 million. So every little bit helps. Absolutely. And so with so has it already started, or will it start? Yes. It's no, started. it's already started. We kicked off a little bit later than we would have liked. Uh, First-year programs are just the best situation for continuous improvement. You start it, you get it going, and you constantly say, how can we do this better, and how can we improve, and how can we make it smoother? So educators some of them work and obviously they're working 10 12 hour days are you getting separate different uh, skills folks educators come in or you have some educators who say look I still would like to be in this after school program and work with the students we have uh, educators and and I would love to share this because I think it speaks really highly to what we're doing in the program and also our institution Georgia Mm -hmm. Gwinnett College and Gwinnett County Public Schools so out of the six certified teachers that we have working in our program um, one is a retired educator from DeKalb the other five are Georgia Gwinnett College graduates from our School of Education who are teaching in Gwinnett County Schools. So they teach during the day, then they come to us in the afternoons and they teach again. What's the feedback been like? Have you visited and have you been been able to visit and see with your own eyes? Yeah with the kids, how they're responding? Yes. Uh, usually I'm on site at least once or twice a week. I do have an amazing staff. I have site coordinators who really are the ones who make everything work. They're there every single day. But when I go, I'm seeing really pointed academic instruction, really mindful academic instruction, looking at what do the students need? Are there gaps that we can fill? Are there supports that we can provide? And my teachers are so wonderful. They pay attention to that. They don't just say, we're going to do some math problems mm-hmm. or we'll do a little reading today. They have a plan, just as they do during the day. And this is not for any type of grade. This is just an Correct. extra uh, academic activity that the students can sign up for. Yeah. And, and, and the uh, enrichment portion of our program, I'm so happy to share. And we're growing. We want to grow. We, we want to offer even more than we're offering now. A large portion of our enrichment teachers right now are GGC faculty members. Mm. And we have some certified teachers as well. But we've got faculty leading entrepreneurship, STEP, um, journalism club, two who, literacy who, professors. Who, wait, wait, who, who's teaching journalism over there? I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you have an invitation, by the way. They wanted me to let you know because they I was their first interview because they're producing a couple of newspapers that is um, awesome. this semester, and I was their first interview, so they wanted me to please let you know they would love to uh, Zoom you in at some point. I would, I would be happy to do that. <laughs> what is the assessment checklist that you use then? Because if you go back and say, look, to this funder or to some other grant program and say, look, we can show you, because I was mm-hmm. just speaking with, obviously, the APS superintendent. She's big on data. Yes. You know, sometimes when it comes to getting funding for anything, dealing with kids, folks want data, yep. as opposed to, I don't know why, you can just look out and see what's happening. But, okay, yeah. you got your data. What do you show them? Well, that's the phase we're in right now. We are looking at how to construct our evaluation. And and that's a, a big piece of, I would say, every educational program or should be, but especially federally funded programs. There are a lot of check boxes that we, just for good fidelity, we have to show. And so we're building that right now. I actually talked to my evaluator yesterday, and we're, we're building some plans for 
not just to be superficial and say, hey, we gave some surveys and the students really love what we're doing. Mm -hmm. But he and I were talking about how do we actually speak to impact that we have? We can't claim that our program you know, has the only positive impact. They're they're getting so many things during the day that are valuable. How do we really hone in and try to tease apart what potential impact we're going to have? Um, But but absolutely, a superintendent is correct. That is the name of the game. And you want to show growth and you want to make sure that, you know, what you're presenting, you know, really has has a strong backing. What is the time frame from when the kids, when they finish with their regular day of, of classes and when is it starting? How long is, do y'all provide transportation we do. and all that as well? Because that can do. be challenging for some households. That was a non-negotiable when I was writing this proposal. I've, I have had experiences with this funding source and these programs for about 15 years. And I've seen firsthand that when transportation is not in the equation, you knock out an entire population of students. And arguably, that could be the group of kids who might need this the most. Mm -hmm. So that was, again, a non-negotiable. So students finish up their day um, around 3 p.m., 3.10, at the elementary school. They board GCPS buses, special, but not special buses, but Mm -hmm. buses that only come to us, of course. Um, And the buses bring them from their school campus to our college campus. My staff is there to greet them and get them off the bus and we start their day. And so they are with us uh, from 3.30 p.m. until 6.30 p.m. Monday through Friday. And then parents have the option of either um, picking up their kids in cars Mm -hmm. on our campus or we also provide bus transportation home. And do you all also provide a little snack and meals for them? Because, you we know, I, I was hungry from 3.30 to 6 after <laughs> we, school. So. We do. Interesting fact about this funding source, um, you have to provide a snack, but you are not allowed to buy food. So we worked very closely. And, again, I, I cannot say enough about the partnership with Gwinnett County Public Schools. Uh, I worked with School Nutrition. They're providing snacks. Okay. So you have to provide a meal, but you could not use the money to buy it. Correct. So you have to partner with. Exactly. So so school nutrition uh, at GCPS, they were wonderful to work with. There is a USDA reimbursable program. And so so, you know, the district is not out any resources, any money. But we work together to make sure that this would qualify for that program. And uh, I go visit the school nutrition managers at those two schools every couple of weeks. They're the most lovely ladies. It's not just pizza and hamburgers, right? No, they they wheel the carts out to my car and we (laughs) load my car down with snacks and I take them to the college. How many students so far are in the program? Right now, we have a little over 80 mm-hmm. that are registered. We would love to hit our cap of 120. What is the next step? Because it sounds like it's working. It is. Um, and then if you've got 1.5 million for th- how many years? Five years. Five years. And now that's just, that's just with two elementary schools. Mm-hmm. If you look into your <laughs> your crystal ball, sure. you, you need a lot more. To, to even advance this to middle or high school or Absolutely. just at least all elementary. I mean, that's a lot. It is. So looking uh, right at where we are right now, I would say I'm highly focused on looking at the parts of our program that can improve. Um, again, we are doing a great job. My staff is doing a wonderful job, but you get complacent and things don't work. We're always looking at what's working right now, but how do we make it better? It's great that we have seven different enrichment offerings right now. I want 12. You know. And you know what, doctor, for f- kids, for some of them, this is the first time to a college campus. We this hear m- that all the time. You might open their eyes to a whole new just world for them. Yep. They've got to, I can imagine they've got to really enjoy that. We, we believe that they do. That's what we're seeing and hearing. Um, the very first day, uh, not first day rather, but first week of the program, I had a conversation with a fifth grader. And she said, do you know what? And I said, what? She said, I like it here. And I said, well, I'm really glad to hear that. And I'm thinking she means the program. And, and I paused and I said, do you mean that you like it in our program or do you mean you like it here on our campus? And she thought for a second and she smiled and she said, both. And I said, do you think you might want to come here one day? And she said, yeah, I do. And she should have said, will you uh, make sure I <laughs> get this tuition paid? Exactly. That's going to be the next step. Yeah. We're going to we're going to that actually came out from a parent meeting. A parent mm-hmm. said, you know, hey, can we can we talk about, um, you know, kids who graduate, if you will, from the Dreamers program? You know, mm-hmm. they go third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. You know, what if they want to come back here to GGC? Can we talk about a scholarship? And I said, man, this is this is why we have parent meetings, because that is a wonderful idea. And that needs to be put on the list of 
many things that we want to do. How diverse is the student participation? Extremely diverse, extremely diverse. We have every uh, race, ethnicity represented, uh, as well as lots of languages. Now, I would believe that the journalism course is probably the most uh, popular, but I'll let you go ahead and just (laughs) tell the truth here. I I imagine probably something with music or art or STEM is probably the most popular. It's really hard to say. Um, Students are very... I mean, yeah, they're 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 their own people. They're they're yeah. so individualized, and I will say, I think one good thing that we did, we were just trying to get off the ground and make sure the very basic needs were met in the mm-hmm. fall. We wanted to make sure that our our organization was tight and that we were keeping kids safe. That was just that had to be right. Mm-hmm. And so in the fall, we we prescribed enrichment to the students, and they had a good time. But when we came back in January, I asked my staff to survey students and say, "What do you want to be in?" Yeah. Let's change how we're approaching this a little bit. And so, but I will say, most of them are pretty equitably attended. They're having a good time. That's a good answer. Yeah. Dr. Amber Ebert is an assistant professor of science education and the secondary education department chair at Georgia Gwinnett College. And it's called the Grizzly Academy Dreamers. For folks who are listening who says, hey, maybe the next round, can my, my child get in that? Where can they go for more information? Uh, well, I am happy to talk to anybody uh, about that or, or help, you know, brainstorm programs. But, yeah. Is there a website? Uh, there is. There's a link on our website for Georgia Gwinnett College. So just go to program. Georgia. Just mm-hmm. go to Georgia Gwinnett College. Yeah. And we'll have a link as well. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank, Thank you for you. what you're doing for so many students. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I would be happy to come out there. Please. We would love it. It's going to be the most well-attended after school course (laughs) not only by students but uh you're probably going to see a lot of faculty too when they hear that you're there um a lot of my colleagues were very jealous that i was getting to come and talk to you today wait wait till they see the hat and the shirt you get (laughs) that's it for this edition of closer look our producers are Lashawn hudson daniel razel and pat st Clair. tiffany griffith is our supervising producer our engineer is soya vanderwerf Reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of today's program, it's online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as on our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts.